passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. So who likes to hear testimonies like Linnaeus? Anybody? Oh, I, I, I love testimonies like that. In fact, testimonies, I think, are one of the best parts of being in a church where we get to be with other believers and to be able to hear what God is doing in their lives. How God takes people who can sometimes be in real disastrous situations, rescue them, and then take and use them in ways beyond what we would ever ask or imagine for His kingdom. Now, as a church, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and today we are in Mark chapter 5, and we come to what is one of the most powerful testimonies of life change in the entire New Testament. So those of you who like testimonies, this is your Sunday. It's an incredible testimony we're about ready to study. Now, let me remind you what we've learned and where we were at earlier in our study well, last week we had seen that Jesus had been teaching by the shore of Capernaum. And evening had come, and it was a long day, and Jesus decided that um, it was time to go to the other side of the lake, got his apostles in the boat, and off they went to the other side. The apostles were thinking, this is great, we can finally get some much-needed rest, we can finally get some relaxation. They had no idea what was about ready to unfold that night when they went across the lake. The Scriptures tell us that the, sea of, the sudden storm descended on the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee is known for these kind of storms. The Greek text tells us it was hurricane force, cyclone force winds, 70 plus miles an hour. Historically, waves in the small Sea of Galilee can be as high as 10 feet, all for a little tiny boat. In fact, uh, the disciples say that the boat was completely swamped. It was filled with water. They were going down with the ship when, when finally they woke Jesus up from the back. And then to their surprise, with just speaking the word, he said, peace and be still. And as fast as you can snap your fingers, the wind went from 70 miles an hour to dead flat. It says the waves instantly went flat, from 10-foot tall swells to a lake that was as smooth as glass. Instantly, the wind and the waves obeyed the voice of their Creator like an obedient dog obeys its master. Well, what happened for the rest of the night? I'm sure they were bailing the boat, <laughs> plenty of bailing to do that night, and they had to get themselves back on course, and eventually they landed on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That's where we pick up our story. When they have arrived on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, it is early morning hours. They have just put the boat down, and they're getting off of the boat. Normally at this time, I would go ahead and we'd read the text, which is going to be the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 5. I'm going to tell you right now, because this is 20 verses, I'm not going to read the text because we don't have time to read the text. We're just going to work right through the text, and we're going to see how things unfold. 
for Jesus and his disciples when they land on the other side of the lake. The first things we're going to learn about are this. We're going to learn about demons and that demons destroy life. So let's begin in your outlines on Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, what we're going to read in Mark chapter 5 is the story of the Gadarene demoniac, which, by the way, this is also recorded in the book of Matthew. It's also recorded in the book of Luke. But when you read the stories at this point, there's a little discrepancy because all of a sudden, Mark and Luke call it the country of the Gerasenes, but Matthew calls it the area of the Gadarenes. Now, some people see this discrepancy and they say, well, look at this. This is an example of why you can't trust your Bible. Uh, the, uh, the Gospels don't even get the same place. So this whole thing must be made up. Is that what's happening here? Actually not. Both of them are right. Uh, Mark and Luke talk about the Gerasenes, and it's because Jesus landed at the small town of Gerasa. Gerasa. Go ahead and put that up there for me. This shows you, or Gergesa, I can't pronounce it right. It shows you where he landed. Now, it's a very small town. But the interesting part is most people don't know where that town is located at. Matthew, what he does is he just, in his mind, goes a few miles south to a much larger town that everybody knows about called Gadaria. So this is a little bit like saying Jesus landed at Fastoria. I mean, how many people in Iowa know about Fastoria? Very few people. But if you're to say, oh, if you're talking to friends on the East Coast, well, it's near Sioux Falls. Everybody knows about Sioux Falls, so that gets them roughly close. So Mark and Luke are talking about the Vistoria-sized town, where Matthew just sort of uses a larger-sized town that most other people would recognize. So that's why you see a little discrepancy in these three accounts on the location of where they landed. The key thing to understand as we get into this study is that Jesus, when he goes to the other side of the lake, has now landed in Gentile territory. He is no longer in Jewish territory. In verse 2, it tells us, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This guy is not your local chamber of commerce representative. He is not from the welcome wagon, and he's not bringing Jesus brownies. This guy is your absolute worst nightmare. The guy lives in a graveyard. Anybody who lives in a graveyard and he's not there to cut the grass, he is a seriously messed up dude. This guy would be a great, uh, do a good job playing on the movie Exorcist. That's really what he is. This guy, he sees the boats coming across the lake in the early morning hours. He sees the boats land. He runs down the hillside to greet them, not to give them a Starbucks card, but to beat them, to violate them to possibly try to even 
kill them and to terrify them and to be their absolute worst nightmare of their life. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, that's a little strong. Really? He's that bad? Go to one of the parallel accounts. Let's go to Matthew and say what Matthew describes this guy like. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. And how does it describe them? So fierce that no one could pass that way. So fierce, nobody could even go to that area. The word fierce uh, literally means violent. These guys would beat people, hurt people, torture people. That's what they're known for. Incidentally, uh, Matthew, by the way, tells us there was actually two of these demon-possessed men. Mark and Luke talks about one of the demon-possessed men. Now, you say, is this a discrepancy? No, it's not. Were there two demon-possessed men? Yes. But the reason that Mark is going to talk about only one of them is because we're going to focus in on this one particular demon-possessed man's testimony, his life change. So the other guy is germane to Mark's purposes at this point. It's not that he doesn't exist, but we're focusing on the testimony of one person, not the testimony of two people. We continue, and it says in Mark chapter 5, verse 3, He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. So he's in the graveyard not to deliver flowers over a tomb of someone he loves. He's there because he has been driven from society. He literally sleeps in a tomb with dead men's bones. He literally sleeps in a place that has the smell of rotting human flesh. This man is very demented. He is deranged. He is a sick sociopath. He is a maniac. He is a monster on the proportions beyond what you and I can even imagine. Luke 8.27 tells us this about him. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the, from the city who had demons. And for a long time he had worn no clothes. And he had lived in a house, not lived in a house, but among the tombs. So, to make matters worse, this guy is not just sick and demented, but he's a naked sick and demented guy who doesn't even wear clothes. Now, it doesn't say it directly in the text, but it certainly implies it through the text that this guy is also a sexual pervert. This guy is about as wicked as you can get. And you say, well, aren't you stretching the text a little bit to say this guy is a sexual pervert, not just a sociopath, demonic maniac? Have any of you studied mental health and people who are sociopaths and who are sick and demented and violent? They are oftentimes sexually deviant to themselves and they're sexually dangerous to others. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us the farther people go from God, the more sexually deranged they will become. This guy is a sexual pervert. He runs around naked. This guy makes Charles Manson and Ted Bundy look like an Eagle Scout compared to him. He is so far off the charts. Now, it doesn't say that he has murdered people, but I suspect that he has murdered people in his life. He probably has raped people in his life. He has no doubt tortured people in his life. Today, these kind of people are locked up in maximum security prisons to keep them from terrorizing people in society. But notice how well it goes to lock this guy up. They've tried to restrain him, even restrain him with chains. But the demons in him have made him so strong that he breaks the chains that people put around him to restrain him. You know, maybe they used a small chain the first time and he broke it. Trust me, they used a big chain the second time and he broke it. They can't even find a chain large enough to chain this guy down, which is why he is out running around in the graveyards, roaming free. This guy is the neighbor from hell, is what he is. The text continues, and it sort of details out about how strong this guy has become through the uh, demons that are in his life. In verse 4, For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. It says he was often bound in chains and shackles. The word for shackles in the Greek actually contains the word foot in it, the Greek word for foot. This talks about leg irons. He's had leg irons put around him. The word for chains here is more of a generic word, but it's essentially handcuffs. You know, he's been put in handcuffs many times, but he wrenches the handcuffs apart. He literally breaks the chains with his hands that bind him. And what about the leg shackles? It says he shatters them. I don't know how you would shatter these things, but maybe he takes something and he consistently hits them until they just break right open. And it says very clearly here that nobody, nobody had been able to confine him. Nobody has been able to restrain him. All attempts at getting this sociopathic, demon-possessed maniac out of society have been completely and totally futile. Remember, he is completely violent. Nobody will even go the area he is. It doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter if it's 10 of you and one of them. He will beat all 10 of you up and leave you bloody running and screaming for your life. He is extremely dangerous. Who knows how many people he has killed, how many people he has raped, how many people he has tortured. That is the picture of this guy. 
And then it says this, night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Imagine this, all day and all night on the hillsides overlooking the town, you hear him crying out. And the Greek word for crying out here is very interesting because it means to cry out in agony and pain as if being tortured. So they hear him with blood-curdling screams of torture on his voice day and night overshadowing this town. Imagine what it would be like to try and go to sleep at night and then your wife next to you to hear in the middle of the night the blood-curdling scream of torture that would make her hair stand up on the back of its neck. Imagine what children are going to be like in this town as they hear the sound of somebody being tortured. It's crazy. There's no way to stop him. No way to control him. And then it says here that this man with incredible supernatural strength who can wrench chains apart was not just using that supernatural strength to violate and abuse others, but he was using that supernatural strength to violate and abuse himself. You notice it says he was cutting himself with stones. Folks, listen to me. This is the original cutter. He's not using razor blades to cut himself. He uses dull and dirty rocks to cut himself. Because the demons within him are committing him to self-mutilation. I want to talk to you who may be younger especially. Not many of them here this morning, but you hear about friends who uh, they start cutting themselves. They start mutilating themselves and abusing themselves. And they say, why are they doing that? Let me tell you where cutting and self-mutilation comes from. It comes from demonic influence. It comes from demonic desires, demonic control. Demons want you to cut yourself and abuse yourself. That's exactly what the demons are doing to this man right here. But the Bible says that when you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify your sinful desires. The answer to a problem with cutting is to walk with Christ, to seek Christ, and to be made a new creation in Christ. That's the answer to the cutting issue. But he is the original cutter, because that's what demons influence you to do and to make you desire to do. Now let me just be clear about something uh, as we, before we go further in the text. Not everyone who is demonically possessed and demonically influenced acts like this or looks like this. This is obviously somebody who is overtly demonically possessed. Looks like a Ted Bundy and a mass murderer, because that's what he is. But you need to understand that Satan's favorite way to operate is not overtly, it is covertly. 
His favorite way to operate is to get somebody who he can demonically influence, who is in church leadership, or somebody who can demonically influence, who can get part of a body of believers so he can lead them astray subtly and, and deviously. You say, does that really happen? Yes, we saw this earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Remember the demon-possessed man who was in the synagogue? He was undercover. He was a covertly possessed man, not an overtly possessed man, until Jesus showed up and made him scream, and he outed himself. So you have covert operating demons, and you have overt operating demons. You have both of them going on here. And now it gets interesting. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. The picture is he was running down the hillside, and he's excited about violating, hurting, mutilating these new visitors in town. And all of a sudden, he's getting close enough, and he realizes it's Jesus. Everything changes. He continues running to Jesus, but he falls down on his face before Jesus. He doesn't violate him. Now, some of you may uh, wonder, how does he recognize Jesus? Folks, it's not the man that recognized Jesus. The man has never seen him before. It's the demons who recognize Jesus. The demons have been around a long time. The demons know Jesus very well. Luke, in his parallel account, says that as this man is running down, as the demons in this man see Jesus, they shriek. They literally begin screaming in terror at the sight of Jesus. So this demon-possessed man who's terrorized everyone, whom no one can bind and no one can control, who everyone is afraid of, goes to attack Jesus, realizes it's Jesus, and it flips. Now he is screaming in terror, and he is the one falling on his face in front of Jesus in fear and in terror, completely flipped it all around. And this is what he says. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. That means I beg you, do not torment me. So these demons began using this man's voice, began using this man's mouth to talk to Jesus. And literally they say, what do you have to do with me? That means, why are you interfering with me? What business do you have with me? And this makes logical sense if you understand how this works. Remember, Jesus has been on the other side of the lake. He's been in Jewish territory casting out demons, and he is a, the Jewish Messiah. Now he takes the boat to the other side of the lake, to Gentile territory, and these demons are like, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be on the other side of the lake. What have you to do with me? Why did you come to this side of the lake? Interestingly, look how the demons identify him. Jesus, son of the most high God. 
don't know if you notice this, as we'll see as we go throughout the book of Mark. The demons, by the way, always have very good theology. In this book, it's not until the middle of the book where Peter identifies Jesus as the Son of God. It's at the end of the book, the centurion, as Jesus dies, says, surely this man is the Son of God. Not a lot of human identification of who Jesus actually is. But throughout the entire book, every demon identifies him as the very Son of God. They're demons, but at least they have good theology. We'll give them that much. Now, here is it gets to a very interesting part, and you're going to really enjoy this. They start begging him, do not torment me. Don't torture us. Why would they say that? You look at the parallel account of Luke chapter 8, verse 31, and they say this, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And all of a sudden, we start asking questions. What is the abyss? Why would they beg him not to send them there? Now, let's take a little bit of time. I'm going to give you some demonology theology. The abyss. Abyss literally means the, the pit. Sometimes in Scripture, it's called the bottomless pit. In Scripture, we find the abyss or the pit. It is talking about a place of confinement where God is currently keeping some particularly wicked and particularly bad demons until judgment day. So they are no longer influencing us and influencing the earth. It's a demonic holding tank to keep some demons from being reigning or roaming around the earth. Now, we first see these kind of super powerful demons who had an especially negative effect on earth and on people in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time with it. I'll just refer it, but it talks about the sons of God finding the daughters of men beautiful and trying to be with them, essentially trying to talk about creating sort of a demonic human hybrid. Genesis 6 does not explain much about this. It just tells us this was taking place. And immediately after the beginning of Genesis 6, where it talks about these demons trying to create sort of a demonic human hybrid, we go to the rest of Genesis chapter 6, which is God responding and saying, okay, it's time for the flood. We are going to wipe everybody out. The only thing we're going to keep is Noah and a representative of all the animals. We're hitting the reset button, starting all again, because the earth has become so incredibly wicked. You go to the New Testament, you have some more explanation about this abyss and the pit. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now let's back up here. Work our way through this verse. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, is this talking about good angels or fallen angels? It's talking about fallen angels because these angels sinned. Is it talking about all fallen angels, which are known as demons. It can't be talking about all demons 
Because obviously if all demons were being referred to here, they would, Jesus would not need to cast any out. So this is talking about some demons, when they sinned, were cast into hell, it says. By the way, the word for hell here is very interesting. I don't like the way the ESV translated this. It is not the normal word for hell. It is the one time this Greek word is used. It's Tartarus. Tartarus is a place in Greek mythology which was a holding place for demons, also known as the abyss. They were cast, he says, into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. Gloomy darkness is sometimes translated, the Greek word, as the pit. Demons, some demons, who sinned, it says, were cast into the place known as the pit or a place of gloomy darkness where they are being kept until the day of judgment is what it's saying. Jude chapter 6 talks about this very same thing. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. These are some angelic beings they're demons that did not stay in their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. What was going on in Genesis 6? The sons of God were trying to create a demonic human hybrid. They were trying to be on the earth. What has he done with them? Kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness, which can also be translated as the pit. He's kept them chained in the pit until the day of judgment. Incidentally, when you go to the book of Revelation, you find four references to this pit, the abyss, where God has kept some of these particularly wicked demons chained. And this is what it says. I'll just show you one of them. And then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended." And after that, he must be released for a little while. What we see in this chapter of Revelation, verse 20, or chapter 20, is that there will come a time where not just the particularly uh, nasty demons are bound in the pit until the day of judgment, but Satan and the rest of the demons eventually will be bound in this pit. And they will be there for a thousand years during the millennium, which is the earthly reign of Christ, when Satan and his demons will no longer have influence upon this earth. But at this time, we know that there's just the particularly powerful and wicked demons that have been bound in there. Now, what these demons in this man are begging is Jesus don't send us to that pit. We belong there. We're particularly powerful. 
we're particularly wicked, please do not send us there. Because you notice when it comes to Revelation chapter 20, Jesus has no problem sending Satan and all the rest of the demons there. Now, it says this, and behold, it says this in Matthew, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? In other words, they know that on judgment day, they will be tormented by being thrown into the lake of fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Have you come to throw us into the pit and tor start our torture early? That's what their question is. Now, let's just continue this and see how it flips to Jesus now. Jesus saves life. For he was saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus is asking this demon what his name is. By the way, just so you know, we have names. I don't know if you realize this, demons have names too. Names that identify them uniquely, just like we have names that identify us uniquely. This demon, though, has a collective name. His name is Legion, because this man is possessed by more than one demon. Now, Legion. Legion comes from a Roman legion. And when I was preaching through um, the beginning of this gospel, I mentioned the Roman legion has 5,000 soldiers. And then I was doing some checking and preparation for this Sunday, and I kept seeing references to a Roman legion having 6,000 soldiers. And I was like, which one is it, 5,000 or 6,000? Did I preach it wrong? And so I did some more extensive research, and I'll give it to you this way. During the time of Julius Caesar, the Roman legions contained 3,500 soldiers. But steadily over the time of the Roman Empire, they increased the size of the Roman legions until the end when Rome was finally destroyed, they were up to 8,000 soldiers in a Roman legion. So how many demons are in this guy? 5,000? 6,000? I really don't know. But what I do know is this guy is seriously demonically possessed with thousands of demons. This guy is crawling with demons, which explains his incredible strength. Strength that means you can't even find chains to bind him. Incidentally, to make sure this is clear, uh, possession by multiple demons at one time is not, this is not the only time that happens in Scripture. Go to uh, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. It talks about Mary Magdalene, who is possessed by seven demons. But this guy is off the charts. And they are begging these demons to be not sent to the bottomless pit. They're begging for something else, by the way, too. It says this in verse 10, and he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. What we learn here, by the way, I don't know if you realize this, demons are territorial in nature. Demons like to hold and control a physical geographical area. Very similar to animals. You know how animals mark their territory? They hold their territory. They defend their territory. Demons function the very same way. 
Now, I'm not going to have time to give you all the biblical explanation behind that. I'll give you some biblical explanation behind that. But by the way, if you think about this, this explains things like haunted houses, holding a territory, or if you go to Haiti when you hide voodoo and people that are like trees that they say can be possessed, holding a territory. Let me show you uh, how, just one explanation of this in Scripture. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13 talks about, and the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. In this context, this is talking about one of God's angels trying to bring a message to Daniel. He was held up by the prince of the kingdom of Persia, a demon who was the demon over the kingdom of Persia. You see the territory thing coming out there? Holding him up until Michael the archangel came to his aid and let this angel through? Well, we continue the story in verses 11 and 12. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And it's a large herd, by the way. We'll see in a moment it's about 2,000 pigs. And the instant question comes up, why do the demons want to go in the pigs? And my answer is, I don't know. How about that? The best I can understand is they want a host. They want something to possess. If they're not going to go to the pit and they want to stay in the region, what can they possess in the region? They want to be able to possess animals. Now, by the way, can animals be demonically possessed? Apparently so. Because here we have 2,000 pigs that are about ready to become demonically possessed. Verse 13, so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. These demons were committed to, remember, destroying this man. This man was cutting himself. What do they do as soon as they get in the pigs? The exact same thing. They begin to destroy them. Even today, if you go to this area of Gergesa, they have an area, a place known as the Kersey Cliff, which they say is the place where these pigs went off down the cliff. Go ahead and put that up for me. Um, it's not a great photo. It was the best I could find on the internet. But you can see where you have this cliff and it drops really steep down to this flat area, which when the uh, water in the Sea of Galilee is up, that area is covered. They said this is the area the pigs went down and all landed in the water and they died. Now, at least we're in Iowa, so we don't have a lot of PETA people out there. But the PETA people sort of freak out at this one. How could Jesus be so mean? and have all of these pigs be killed. Well, let me tell you something. All these pigs were going to get killed anyway. They were going to be bacon, they were going to be pork chops, and they were going to end up in a spam can. That is where they were going. They were just all killed ahead of time, butchered a little early. 
The key thing to focus on here is not the 2,000 pigs that died, but how Jesus loved and saved a demon-possessed, sexual, pervert maniac because his life is still important to God. Now, as the story wraps up, it says this, the herdsmen fled, or what choice will you make about Jesus is my question. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So the herdsmen are knowing they're in big trouble. They just lost 2,000 pigs. You know their boss is going to be pretty angry. So they run to town to tell everybody what happened. It's not our fault. We're just mining the pigs. This guy, Jesus, comes along, took all the demons out of that nutcase, and they all ended up in our pigs. And they went down, and they all died. And here's the interesting part. Remember, the people were in complete fear of that demon-possessed man. Nobody could bind him. Now they see Jesus, who with just a word cast all of the demons out of this man, and they are terrified of him. What kind of power does Jesus possess that at just a word to take an entire legion of demons out of a man's life. You know how they responded, though it's interesting? They responded by actually requesting Jesus to leave their region, which is totally strange. You see, the people who lost their pigs asked Jesus to leave because they were afraid of what Jesus might cost them. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Jesus has the power to save and change any life. But they realize that if Jesus saves a life, it might cost them something like they just lost 2,000 pigs. And are there other people in that town who are demonically possessed? Other people who are hurting that Jesus could heal? Of course. But they wager in their mind that if they, Jesus frees more people from demonic possession, think what it may cost us then. And in this town... Our pigs are more important than our people. Now, where does it go from there? Because while the demonic or the, the people begged Jesus to leave, the demoniac who was changed by Jesus wanted to stay with him. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you 
and how he has had mercy on you. This demonically possessed man who had all these demons cast out of him, who was now sane and finally in his right mind, he loved Jesus. He didn't want to leave Jesus. I suspect they'd had other conversations. This man went from being demon-possessed to placing his faith in Christ. This guy wanted to become the 13th apostle. That was his plan. Jesus, I want to be with you the rest of the time. I never want to leave you. And Jesus says to him, no, I want you to stay. And I want you to tell all these people who want me to leave, just tell them your story. Tell them what Jesus has done in your life. Share your testimony. And then comes what is the, probably the biggest gem in this entire story, verse 20, that we often pass over. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He didn't just go back to the small town of Gergesa and tell people how Jesus had freed him from his demons and given him his life back. But he went to the entire Decapolis. That's a Greek word that's combined. Deca means ten. Polis means city. There is a section here of a confederation of ten Greek or Gentile cities that work together. It is a huge area. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. That is the Decapolis. It is a huge area. He goes to the entire area of the Decapolis and shares his testimony about what Jesus Christ had done to save his life. Not just the small town, the entire huge area. And here is where it gets fascinating. At the end of Mark chapter 7 and the beginning of Mark chapter 8, Jesus goes into the area of the Decapolis and there's a Gentile region who doesn't know about Jesus. And guess what happens? They bring him a deaf man. And then in Mark chapter 8 is the feeding of the 4,000 because thousands of people come to see Jesus and to hear Jesus. And the only way they knew about Jesus was this one demon-possessed maniac who had all of the demons taken out of his life, who went around the entire Decapolis telling them what Jesus had done to change their, his life. He went from a demon-possessed maniac to the very first missionary sent out to the Gentile people. And thousands of people were introduced to Jesus by his life. It's a huge story of life change. Now, what are the applications I give to you here? Number one, no matter how far from God we have wandered, Jesus can save our life. I don't know what sin you are struggling with right now. I don't know how much demonic influence or foothold is in your life. And you're going to say, Jesus, you can't forgive me. You can't change me. Trust me, if Jesus can change the life of the demon-possessed maniac that we just read about today, he can save and change you. It doesn't matter how far you've wandered. 
and he can use you in ways beyond your imagination. This guy was the missionary to the entire Decapolis when Jesus changed his life. Isn't this good news? The other thing I have for you is this. God calls us to share our testimony. Telling others how God changed our life spreads the gospel in the world. Folks, oftentimes when it comes to sharing about Jesus, we're like, I don't know what to say. I mean, I wasn't trained. I don't have schooling. This guy didn't have any training. He didn't have any schooling. The only thing he had in his life was a testimony. This is who I was, and Jesus changed me. Let me tell you about what he's done in my life. And with just his testimony, he primed the entire Decapolis to be hungry for Jesus Christ, and he paved the way. Folks, all you need is to share your testimony, and God will use that to change people's lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing story of life change. Thank you for how you can take us, even when we have gone so far from you, and you can completely forgive us, and you can break the strongholds of sin and demonic influence in someone's life, and then take them and transform them and use them in ways beyond their wildest imagination for your kingdom. Thank you for the incredible transformative work of your son. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.